Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're going to be doing a little bit of an analysis of a poem by Word- William Wordsworth, uh, lines written in early spring. Um, I'm going to actually read this in, in its entirety first. Uh, it's not an overly long poem. Um, I'm going to try to do some of these uh, in their entirety and have it so that you don't have to necessarily find them. Uh, I'm going to stick to the ones that are in the public domain for that. That way we don't run into issues with copyright. Uh, Wordsworth has been dead for eh, since 1850, so I'm thinking the copyright has expired and this is public domain by now. Um, okay, I'm going to get right into the poem and then we're going to talk about the analysis of it. I heard a thousand blended notes while in a grove I sate reclined in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to mind. To her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran, and much it grieved my heart to think what man has made of man. Through primrose tufts in that sweet bower, the periwinkle trailed its reeds, and tis my faith that every flower enjoys the air it breathes. The birds around me hopped and played, their thoughts I cannot measure, but the least motion which they made, it seemed a thrill of pleasure. The budding twigs spread out their fans to catch the breezy air, and I must think, do all I can, that there was pleasure there. It, if this belief from heaven be sent, if such be nature's holy plan, have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? <clears throat> now I want to attack this from uh, several different angles. We're going to do four different types of criticism. Uh, the first one I want to do is a little bit of new criticism on it. Uh, this I kind of want to do to show that this is more helpful for people who actually write poetry. Um, uh, this will give you hints of how things are done. What is what is the structure like? Uh, so looking at this, doing a scanning of the lines, uh, we see that the first three lines of every stanza, and it's a four-line stanza, uh, has eight syllables, or eight beats per line. And then the fourth line of every stanza is a six-beat line. So we have eight, eight, and six in all of the stanzas. We also have a rhyme scheme that is ABA. So the first and third line rhymes, the second and fourth line rhymes in every stanza. And they use an end rhyme. <clears throat> also, as you look at it, you'll find they use several figures of speech. Um, you use personification over and over again in here. Uh, you have a lot of things in nature taking on human traits. Uh, for example, the, every flower enjoying the air that it breathes. Uh, this is a human trait. Uh, the birds hopping around uh, and their motion seemed a thrill of pleasure. Um, so you have these uh, devices, literary devices that they're using. You also have the use of words that are multiple meaning, and I'm only going to point out one. Um, you may have thought when I read the poem that I mispronounced the word uh, sat. Uh, while in a grove I sate reclined. But he actually uses the word sate. Now if you look up the word sate, you'll see it has three meanings, uh, three main meanings that all apply to this poem. The first one is that it is an archaic form of sat. So it's a form of sat that used to be used but is no longer in use. Um, it also has the meaning of satisfied or satiated. Um, 
and the other meaning of it is uh, weary. So you have these three meanings. Uh, the, uh, he sat reclined, which makes sense. That he was sort of in a state of satisfaction and reclined, which also makes sense. But also that he was in a weary state and reclined. So it's kind of this uh, satisfied weariness that he sits in. And it, this goes in well with the next two lines in it, where he talks about in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to mind. So he's kind of drifting in kind of a nostalgic, uh, almost nostalgic sadness in, this, in these lines. So all three of those meanings of that word kind of add to that. Um, and you're going to find this a lot in poetry especially. Uh, poets love to use words uh, that have more than one meaning when they write something. <clears throat> From the New Critic perspective, I'm going to break off there. We could obviously do a lot more with it, um, but I just want to give you a little bit of a taste of that one. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the feminist criticism of this. Now, one of the things about this is, regardless of the fact that this is a male author who wrote this, uh, we do not get a sense of whether this is a male or female narrator. This could be either or. You have to keep in mind that the narrator and the author are not the same person. Uh, you may have a male author with a female narrator or a female author with a male narrator. Um, the author is the physical person that wrote the work. The narrator is the character who tells the story. And that is not always the author, though sometimes it can reflect the thoughts of the author. <clears throat> also in this, we notice um, the only really gender uh, reference gender is uh, what man has made of man. Now this would be something from the time period when this was written that would be common. When you talked about humans or people, uh, they were commonly referred to as man, which in present times would be considered uh, somewhat of a sexist usage. Um, but you can also think about this in that, uh, aside from that, it would actually be a more accurate usage to say what man has made of man. Because in this time period, this was written in 1798, um, and Wordsworth was living in England, uh, he's living under a king, uh, King George III, the same one who was the king of England uh, during the American Revolution. And so you could honestly say that this is what man has made of man because this is a male-dominated society. Um, and from a feminist perspective, you might think about the fact of, you know, this reflects the male values, but also the rejection of those values. You kind of get a sense that the narrator is lamenting how everything has been about business and, and war and unhappiness and uh, poverty and all of these issues um, and what he's longing to escape to is a more natural world a world where um, things are not ruled by the uh, and ruled and ruined I should say by the schemes of men <clears throat> so that's a little bit of a feminist perspective on this I want to move into uh, psychological criticism and talk about that a little bit now, from a psychological perspective, um, you have someone who is kind of having a little bit of a, uh, a bout with melancholy. 
Um, they see unhappiness as being in the world of humans, uh, and they're trying to use nature as a, an antidote to this, you know, kind of restoring them to uh, a little bit of real life. Now, this is something you can see a lot uh, still relevant today. This is one of the things about uh, poetry and novels, any great work of literature, is that it doesn't just have application when it's written. You can see uh, similar application in the times we live in now. You know, think about how much of our lives are tied up in electronic devices, uh, television, and, uh, you know, all kinds of things and living indoors and climate-controlled environments, how separated we are from nature, uh, how complicated and fast-paced life has become. Now, our life is much more fast-paced than it was in this time period, but you can see even way back here, there starts to be this sense of we're being alienated from life, and it's kind of causing this depression, this sense that we're not connected to things that are real, um, which is leading to his uh, disillusionment with, the, uh, with humans and with human life. Uh, Wordsworth um, is picking up a theme that is very large with the Romantics and very large with the, the literary movements that follow. Um, this idea that Yes, we're getting places with science and technology, but we're also losing things. We're losing our connection to a real life. Uh, you can see this in uh, writers who come a little bit later, like the American Transcendentalists, uh, Emerson and Thoreau, where they kind of see nature as an, as an antidote to the gloom and despair of modern life. Um, you can see this as you move into the realists and the naturalists and the modernists and the postmodernists, this sort of sense of uh, longing for a connection to something real that we don't seem to be able to establish. <clears throat> okay, I want to move out of that and talk a little bit about cultural criticism. Um, and I covered a little bit of this in the psycho psychological and the feminist, but the cultural critic might look at this and see how this is a criticism of modern life and science and how things are moving faster and faster and we're kind of losing touch. So this is a culture in change. This is a culture that's moving from being uh, more rural, more agrarian, to a culture that's being more business-driven. Everything is uh, becoming more and more pressed for time. Now this is before the Industrial Revolution, so this isn't the Industrial Revolution, but this is uh, after the, the start of the period of Enlightenment, where people are moving towards science as the answer to things. And you see in works of this time and works of later times that people are starting to become uh, a little bit skeptical of where things are going. So this is a culture of ver that is, uh, on one hand, uh, happy with the advancements, but on the other hand, afraid of what it's bringing. You know, think of Mary Shelley, who's in the next generation of romantics when she writes Frankenstein. You know, Frankenstein, a large part of what is behind that novel is that, you know, 
the Enlightenment tells us that science and technology are going to free us and make our lives better. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is kind of representing the fears that life is going to, or science is going to create monsters that will eventually overwhelm us and destroy us. So culturally, this is very much a time period of change. It's a very, it's very much a time period of uh, instability. Nobody knows where things are going, and it doesn't quite seem like it may be very good. And so there's sort of this longing for the simpler past. Now, also through a cultural criticism, you might see that this is not really kind of a necessarily Christian view that's being put forward. Um, you know, it talks about, it does mention heaven it's in the last stanza, if this belief from heaven be sent, um, but then it says, if such be nature's holy plan, have I not reason to lament what man has made of man? And you get almost a sense of pantheism, which pantheism is something that is very much a part of the Romantic tradition, kind of this idea that the divine is everything and everywhere. It's nature. Um, the Romantics saw the individual as being intimately tied to nature. You know, and the, uh, some of the other Romantics think of, like Edgar Allan Poe, when, you know, the character is sad and gloomy, it's gloomy and dark and rainy and dreary outside. Uh, when the character needs to be restored, they go out into nature, and nature sort of brings that restoration. So culturally, the Romantics, and this is shown in this poem, very much believe that humans are tied to nature, and that the outer nature is a reflection of what's going on inside the person. You know, nature is a place to go to be uh, healed, to be restored. Uh, the American transcendentalists also kind of uh, pick up on this theme and, and carry it along. Emerson and Thoreau. You know, a lot of the transcendentalist philosophy is that, you know, we need an original um, experience of nature, an original relationship, that we shouldn't be taking things from books that were written hundreds or thousands of years ago, that our inspiration can come through directly uh, experiencing uh, nature and the divine. So there's very much a different sense of religion here. If you read earlier works, um, there would be very much based on either in Europe, for uh, pretty, uh, to be sure, uh, would be based on either Catholic or Protestant uh, belief systems. So they would have much more of that religion in there, whether it was an endorsement of the religion or a critique of it. Whereas here, we see culturally the religious feeling that's being uh, put forth is more of a pantheistic feeling, more of a connection, a longing for connection to the world, to nature. <clears throat> now, the Romantics also kind of have this uh, spirit of rebellion that they've carried through most of their works, and they're kind of trying to reject the way things are going. And oddly enough, one of the characters uh, for a lot of romantics who becomes a sort of hero 
uh, is the character of Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, and that's because he kind of uh, isn't so much a, a representation of evil in Paradise Lost as he is a representation of rebellion. Um, the romantics, especially the later ones that come along, Byron, uh, are, are very much inspired by some of the speeches. Uh, speeches like, you know, what matter where, if I be the same and mine be the same, the mind is a place in itself and in itself can make a hell of heaven a heaven of hell. Um, sort of this idea that, you know, we can transform where we are by our uh, mental state. So that, again, you get this sense of nature and the inside being intimately connected. Now you can see this later too with a lot of um, uh, different kind of new age beliefs where you're kind of restoring balance by restoring your connection to the world. Okay, I'm going to break off for there for now, um, but I hope that this helped to see how you can sort of use uh, these techniques and, and get a little more out of them. In the future I'll be going into more depth and I'll be using just one of the techniques on a work instead of giving you slight views on different ones. But I wanted to take an episode and give you uh, a little bit of how you can attack the same work from different angles. Okay, I am going to uh, get off of here for now and I will talk to you all soon. Uh, my next podcast will be the part three on the se uh, session on power. Uh, so that will be coming up hopefully within the next few days. I hope you all are well and I hope to. Speak to you all again soon.